You are listening to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable Podcast, a podcast covering all things Civil War. Please subscribe by going to our website, www.capitaldistrictcivilwar.org. You are listening to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable Podcast. My name is Nick Tony. I'm your host. Today we are joined by Patrick Schroeder. Patrick is a historian at Appomattox Courthouse National Historic Park. He's an author of several books and the owner of Schroeder Publications and a great friend of the roundtable. Patrick, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Nick. Glad to be here. Uh, you're an expert on many things. Um, you're here tonight to talk about the Zouaves. Uh, you've written a very good book uh, called We Came to Fight, the history of the 5th New York Veteran Volunteer Infantry. Uh, Dure Zouaves, uh, 1863 to 1865. You're obviously also an expert on the surrender at Appomattox. Um, so we'll try our best to sort of weave those two things, even though they're very related t- together. But we'll start with um, your book, We Came to Fight First. Um, now, your book picks up their history in 1863. Correct. Um, but what? But by then they had gained a pretty good reputation as a brave unit. Um, what did they do before 1863, um, and how'd they get that reputation? Yeah, the the 5th New York Duryea Zouaves is one of the more famous Civil War regiments, and they wore the Zouave attire patterned after the North African troops that the French then adopted the uniform, and Elmer Ellsworth spread throughout uh, the United States prior to the Civil War. Abram Duryea, former commander of the 7th New York uh, militia, uh, a very well-known militia organization, uh, liked the Zouave uniform and had the 5th New York outfitted in Zouave attire patterned after the 2nd Regiment of French Zouaves. The original 5th New York from the New York City area, Manhattan, Brooklyn, some from Long Island, even as far down uh, to Poughkeepsie, they had distinguished leadership uh, Abram Duryea uh, with the background with the militia, but their second in command was a fellow known uh, named Governor Kemble Warren, who most people know as the savior of Little Round Top, but he had an excellent uh, military background stemming from, from the United States Military Academy at West Point. And a second uh, Duryea in there is Hiram Duryea. Uh, and these were men that were strict disciplinarians, uh, very good at drill. And they passed their knowledge uh, onto their men and made them a very, very good fighting unit. And uh, they fight in the first battle of the Civil War. Most people will say, well, that's Bull Run or Manassas, but it is actually the Battle of Big Bethel on June 10, 1861. It's not an army size affair, but uh, the 5th New York is engaged there and suffers more casualties than any other unit involved in that battle attacking Confederate fortifications. They get to their training up in Baltimore, where they're posted over the winter of 1861 to 1862. And when they join the Army of the Potomac in the spring of 1862, General McClellan, he, he loved Zouaves. He uh, had witnessed the exploits of the French Zouaves in the Crimea. He said the Zouave was the beau idea of a soldier and the finest light infantry that Europe can produce. And the Fifth New York emulated those French Zouaves, so uh, that he often had companies of the Fifth New York posted around his headquarters. When Lincoln visited the Army, McClellan would call out the Fifth New York to do their bayonet exercise. 
but they were more than a showpiece regiment. They also uh, fought well and hard, uh, especially at the Battle of Gaines Mill. Uh, they go toe-to-toe with the 1st South Carolina Rifles and inflict about 315 casualties on them. Uh, and that's more than any other Confederate unit suffered casualty-wise at the Battle of Gaines Mill. So they did very well, even though they lost 162 men themselves. Uh, but they were on the field the, the, the whole day. So. Right. And, and they were also in the thick of it at the second bull run, correct? I mean, yeah, the tables get turned on them at second Manassas, uh, mainly due to the numbers, because they are on the federal left flank. Uh, the James Longstreet has appeared with, well, he wasn't really well known that he was there, but uh, he was it came in on the federal left flank with about 30,000 men. And uh, the 5th and 10th New York, uh, which w- consisted of Warren's Brigade at the time, uh, you know, they were the first units that encountered Longstreet's advance and held out for, a, for about 10 minutes, but uh, suffered uh, enormous casualties. The 5th New York losing nearly 300 men in 10 minutes. So what happens in 1863? And I think this is sort of a, a problem that the Union Army has in general, but sure. the 5th the definitely has it. Um, the two-year enlistments run out, yeah. and what happens? They do. The two-year enlistment runs out. The men that enlisted for three years get transferred to a uh, another unit, the 146th New York, from Oneida County. Uh, and... Uh, the, the men didn't know it, but the, the 146th New York were, gonna get, were scheduled to get Zouav uniforms, too, uh, as part of Warren and uh, McClellan's plan to form a Zouav brigade. But the original 5th New York, those two-year men, are going home, and they actually uh, get orders to go home right, right from the battlefield at Chancellorsville. And so they go home with those men, and... Uh, there's a number of regiments that are getting mustered out at this time because their two-year service is up. Uh, but they are now commanded by a fellow named uh, Cleveland Winslow. He is uh, a captain with the unit. And what he wants to do is re-raise the 5th New York and bring them back into the field. Um, but it's going to be difficult. First of all, it's, they're going to be raising their unit in the middle of the New York City draft riots. So they got that to contend with. And the other thing is, of, uh, you know, 1,500 men or so that enlisted in the, the 5th New York, uh, they bring home, you know, I think, uh, you know, two to 300 men that are still in the field and uh, that weren't transferred to the 146. And just getting those men to go through, her, enlist again for three more years to, go through battles like Second Manassas was a pretty hard thing to do. Right, and he, he spends a uh, a very long winter, sort of. He gets permission to, to do this, to, to try to reform the 5th, but um, many frustrations in getting guys, and then when he does, there's a lot of disciplinary problems. Uh, yeah. Um, talk a little bit about that, and sort of talk, uh, if you can, a little more about Winslow and whether he was sort of, there's a lot about him in this book, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, was he effective? I mean, he, he sort of got bogged down a little bit in, in detail, but it also sort of helped this group come together uh, by the time they go back into the field. Yeah, Winslow was a bit of a martinet. He, he was a strict disciplinarian like his uh, mentors. Uh, the men uh, thought he was too strict. 
Um, <clears throat> but he uh, did good service in, in helping put down the uh, draft riots, but his big problem is he can't get those men of the 5th New York to re-enlist, not many of them. In the end, he gets about 30 guys to re-enlist. But what he has to do is tap into those other units that are mustering out of service, some of the Hawkins Zouavs, large numbers of men uh, from the 31st and 37th New York that muster out. So it's really an amalgamation of units that are combined together to become the 5th New York Veteran Volunteers. And even at that, he only raises four companies. So that's a battalion. So he came home actually a colonel, and he's going to take him back into the field as the lieutenant colonel. So he's had a step down in, in rank. And they're going to go to Washington. Problem with this uh, amalgamated unit is these are not mainly not men from the original 5th New York. So they had their own history with their own units. Uh, so they kind of identify with those units. And they were not as disciplined as the, uh, the original 5th New York. So uh, he has some issues there. Uh, but they're posted in Alexandria. They do duty along the, the railroad line, and um, they get called into the field after Grant suffers the losses at the Wilderness in Spotsylvania. And when they go down to Virginia uh, to the battlefields, um, they're put in the Fifth Corps under Warren, who Warren – uh, like seeing his protege Cleveland Winslow with the fifth to the old fifth, yeah. and he uh, wants to see his friend uh, be a full colonel. So he takes other units that <clears throat> had mustered out their their uh, their men, the twelfth New York and fourteenth Brooklyn, uh, where their three men are three year men are staying in the field, and uh, he puts them into the fifth New York Veteran Volunteers. This gives Winslow a full regiment. Uh, which will make him a colonel again. But really, even before they get to do that, they go into their first battle as an uh, amalgamated unit once again and uh, lose 104 men at the Battle of Bethesda Church, right. which is part of the Cold Harbor battle. And Winslow himself gets shot in the shoulder, and uh, he you know, continues fighting even though he's suffered a grievous wound, uh, and they make it through the battle. But... Uh, he meets with a rather unfortunate fate. His father is a chaplain with the Army. His father's taking him to the hospitals up in Washington, and uh, that's Gordon Winslow Sr., and he goes to draw water for his horse uh, over side of the, the ship that's going up the Potomac, and he gets yanked overboard and drowned, so he loses his father on the way to Alexandria, and then he uh, uh, eventually succumbs to his wound uh, at uh, one of the hospitals in Alexandria. Well, and there's a lot of stories in this book like that where you have regular men. In this case, it's it's a the father of a colonel and a chaplain. But mm -hmm. you you know, some of the lesser seen aspects of war where you, you have a deserter who's hanged or you know somebody who dies unceremoniously, you know, falling off of a ship and mm -hmm. drowns. So uh, you have a lot of regular voices in this book. You did well, a good job that. was that. the idea, was really to tell the story through the soldier's perspective, through what they saw, use their accounts. Uh, I know uh, <laughs> my, my uh, professor that I did this under would, di didn't like my style, but other people do, where instead of talking about the uh, – 
the colonel and the regiment as a whole, I really talked about the individuals in the regiment and what they experienced. That's the way I like to I like to hear about the common man, you know. I can talk about the colonel, but I want to know what the in individuals experienced, what they went through, what they suffered and survived. And uh, to me, that's the most intriguing part of Civil War history. Yeah, it gives you a fuller picture of what – and the colonel's voice is not missing in this, by no. the way. You know? So, you know, you've got uh, – there's a balance, and it, 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 it works very nicely. Well, thank you. Uh, one, of the, one of the points that you make in your book – is that obviously the fifth um, existed early in the war, and then there was a different iteration in the second half of the war. The fighting has changed in the second half of the war. It certainly um, has. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it changed? Yeah, it becomes siege war, siege warfare uh, at Petersburg, and um, this is more of what was going on in the Crimea War in 1854, 1855, kind of stagnant lines, uh, uh, siege mentality. Of course, Grant is going after the railroads, but these men, instead of marching and uh, distances and uh, engaging, now they are building up trenches uh, to, for protection. On June 18th, the 5th New York suffers over 30 casualties in their assault on Petersburg, mainly just from artillery fire, long-range artillery fire. So these men start to burrow into the ground. They make fortifications, and it ends up being a nine-and-a-half-month siege uh, before Grant can cut all those railroad lines. And that's the whole siege of Petersburg is to cut those railroad lines. So it is a different style of warfare uh, that isn't going to be so much movement and fight. Uh, it's it's going uh, trying to cut those railroads it's, and it's daily engagement it's you know you, you, again in, yeah, early yeah. in the war you've got a big battle everybody you know you fight you go you know might be a month two right. months three months then you fight another battle these guys under fire every, every day uh, sharpshooters uh, they're skirmishing going on artillery shells I mean in the book there's several accounts of, of men that either get hit by a sharpshooter or just in their tent, you know, behind the fortifications, and a random artillery shell just comes through and strikes strikes a man and kills him, you know. So right. the death was random. Now, I know we're skipping ahead a little bit, and we can certainly go back, um, but Five Forks, and we've talked about Five Forks before on this podcast, and, and, the, and the Zwabs mm -hmm. played a, an important role there, the fifth. Um, talk about their role at Five Forks and then the role that Five Forks sort of plays going forward. I mean, uh, I think you even make the point, other historians have made the point that this is where it becomes very clear, if it wasn't already clear, that the war is coming to an end. Yeah, Five Forks is a pivotal battle. It really signals the end of the siege of Petersburg because once the uh, picket is defeated at Five Forks, that uncovers the uh, Southside Railroad, which was Lee's last supply line. So once that fell... He had to get out of Petersburg before he was trapped there. And the uh, pivotal point of this battle is it's a joint operation with the uh, cavalry under Sheridan. The Fifth Corps has made a quite a march to get down there because there had been heavy rains and washed the bridges out. And uh, yeah, there's a little uh, tension there uh, between Sheridan and Warren. Warren is looked at as an old McClellan general, one of the few that's still left with the Army. And Sheridan is the right-hand man to Grant, and Grant, of course, let Sheridan know he that— He played favorites. Yeah, his, Sheridan was a, a favorite of his, and he thought that—he told Sheridan if, uh, if he thought the Fifth uh, Corps could operate better under division commander, he had the power to relieve Warren, and— 
you know, Sheridan took that as a hint and relieved Warren, uh, probably unnecessarily. In fact, he was exonerated of being uh, relieved uh, later. After his death. After his death. Yeah. And, uh, but the pivotal point of the battle comes when uh, the 5th the Corps uh, is marching past Pickett's line and they draw fire from their left flank. You see, the day before at the Battle of White Oak Road, the uh, <clears throat> brigade under um, Colonel Winthrop, who now commands the, the uh, was the commander of the 5th New York and then commanding the brigade, had suffered pretty heavily at the Battle of White Oak Road. So they put him in the reserve. But when they get the fire on their flank, they actually have to wheel and turn to face this fire. And that puts the Zouave Brigade going straight for the angle. Uh, a very significant position for the Confederate forces. And Winthrop actually leads the Zouave Brigade uh, over the angle and takes that conf the Confederate positions. In doing so, he uh, is mortally wounded and loses his life. But there are men in the uh, Zouave Brigade that, uh, uh, especially in the 146 New York Zouaves, that uh, I think they they received three medals of honor for uh, action that day. And, and that's really what breaks the Confederate line, is that uh, the Zouave Brigade charging through the angle. And then how do they end up at Appomattox Courthouse. Uh, there's a few days intervening. Uh, Lee is having a tough time. I think he knows, but he's having a tough time ultimately making the decision to surrender. There's a couple of little battles that happen, I believe, in between, and then... Yeah. The Appomattox campaign is an overlooked campaign. The, the, the most a major Civil War campaign that is overlooked more than anything else because most people look at it and say... Petersburg Falls, Lee surrenders at Appomattox. Well, there's over 100 miles between those two places, and the armies are fighting every day. Every day, yeah. Yeah, it is continuous fighting. Uh, they're not big army-sized battles. They're typically for strategic positions, um, you know, brigade, division-level fights. The largest battle comes at Sailor's Creek on April 6th, and... Uh, and during that battle, you have the uh, Federal 2nd and 6th Corps engaged and most of the Federal Cavalry, and they deal a severe blow to Lee's army, end up capturing eight generals, and uh, 8,000 Confederates are killed, wounded, and, and mainly captured. So that's about a fifth of Lee's army on April 6th. Fortunately for the men of the 5th Corps, uh, they don't really see any heavy action after Five Forks. All they, they do march all the way to Appomattox, and were um, part of the troops advancing on the village on the morning of April 9th when the white flags came out. So uh, they were, were going to see action on the morning of April 9th if Lee didn't uh, decide to surrender. Right. And the whole, the whole objective of Lee in the Appomattox campaign is to try to get west, right? He's trying to, well, get, he's around, trying to get around Grant. West to go south. To go south, yeah. right. Because so he, he wants link to up. link up with Joe Johnston's army in North Carolina. Now, Grant is a bit different than other Union generals who might have just followed behind Lee. He moved troops to the south and positioned them, positioned them across Lee's objective. So when Lee wanted to go south to Danville, he got troops to the Richmond and Danville Railroad, blocked it. So that pushes Lee further and further west. So Lee is always going west in hopes of turning south. Even at the Battle of Salish Creek, he's going for, for Farmville to get rations there so he could turn south. Uh, but Grant was always really, uh, even though he's pursuing Lee, he's always 
at least thinking a step ahead of Lee. Right. And eventually gets troops west of Lee at Appomattox Station and uh, blocks Lee's line of retreat. And then you have the Battle of Appomattox Courthouse on April 9th. And most people don't realize there's two engagements, April 8th and April 9th, uh, that that really uh, confirm that Lee needs to surrender. Because after those engagements, there's federal troops on three sides, and he's effectively surrounded. Right. And so when he does surrender, I, I, this is one of the things you clear up in your other book, 30 Myths uh, About Lee's Surrender. Uh, how many men does he have, and how many men is he looking at in Grant's army? Yeah, um, the numbers at Appomattox is always an interesting topic because people always tend to twist them how they they want to, especially if they're, if it's a, a Southerner that wants to— Part of the lost cause. Lost yeah. cause, mm-hmm. and, you know, they're going to want to tell you that Lee only had 10,000 men, and that's why he had to surrender to Grant's 120,000 men. Well, they're just skewing the numbers there. Uh, Grant has about between sixty-five and 70,000 men present at Appomattox. Lee surrenders 28,231. He did have a few more than that because he had about 1,000 men captured on April 8th. Uh, so he loses 1,000 men that day. And then there is two divisions of Confederate cavalry that actually do not surrender and escape prior to the white flags coming out, and that's another 2,400 men there. So you're looking uh, somewhere between 31, 32,000 Confederates that are in the vicinity of Appomattox Courthouse prior to the surrender. But 28,231 men actually receive parole passes to go home for being surrendered at Appomattox. Right, right. So it's, uh, you know, ballpark 30,000 to 60,000. It's about two to one. Two to one odds. And and um, so when when Lee does make that decision to surrender, what happens next? I, I know that there was a letter exchanged or a number of letters exchanged. Yeah, they actually start corresponding after the battles of Sailor's Creek on April 7th. A little insight, this is a little sidebar thing. There's a surgeon with the United States Army. He, he uh, <coughs> is a Virginian. And after... The battles of Sailor's Creek, Richard Ewell, Confederate general who commanded most of the troops that got captured, uh, he meets Smith, and they, they're cousins. And Ewell says to Smith that he thought Lee would surrender if Grant asked. When Smith relays this to, to Grant, Grant sits down and writes a letter to Lee asking him to surrender his army after the results of the previous day. Uh, that letter gets passed through the lines. It is brought to Lee's headquarters. Grant writes it at 5 o'clock. It makes it to Lee's headquarters, and Grant's in Farmville. Lee's uh, uh, three or four miles north at a, a place called Cumberland Church. It passes through the lines, which is rather dangerous business, oh. passing notes through the lines mm-hmm. like that. Um, but Lee reads it, gives it to his right-hand man, Pete Longstreet. Longstreet reads it, says not yet. But then he writes back uh, to Grant asking what his terms are because he's dealing with a guy known as Unconditional Surrender Grant. And uh, Grant then uh, lays out some terms. And this correspondence starts on the 7th, and it really goes through April 9th. So they exchange letters several times prior to meeting at the McLean House. So, um well, let's let's talk about uh, Wilmer McLean. Uh, okay, <laughs> uh, an interesting character. Yeah, um, everybody knows Wilmer McLean. Right, right. Um, 
who who was he uh, and what so I mean a lot is made about again another thing you, you take on in your book a lot is made about him he lived in Manassas uh, he he was there or his house was disrupted his home was disrupted during the first battle of Manassas right and he moves to Appomattox to get away from the war yeah um, how accurate is that uh, and who who is he general who is Wil- Wilmer McLean well the story you just related there that's what most people know and uh, you know you have a lot of sympathy for Wilmer McLean uh, he himself was the one that would tell that story to people he would say the war started in my front yard and ended in my parlor but they usually don't tell you how it uh, follows up after that is he might say uh, would you like to buy my autograph for a dollar? <laughs> yeah, right. right. Um, Wilmer McLean was a uh, man that was driven by money. Um, I'm not saying he was a bad guy. Uh, he seemed to be pretty well liked by most people that encountered him. Uh, but when the war started, first of all, the plantation, uh, McLean had pursued a number of wealthy widows uh, until he finally is able to snag Virginia Beverly Ho Mason, whose husband had died. Uh, she's a very wealthy widow, and she's the one that owns the plantation at Manassas. Uh, McLean is a merchant. He uh, runs a uh, dry goods business in Alexandria, uh, uh, and so he, he's a, a, yeah, a businessman. So it's not really his house at Manassas, and they don't usually tell people that McLean had rented that house to the Confederate Army and left there prior to the cannonball passing through the kitchen. So, uh, you know, you leave out little details like that to get a little more sympathy. So he ends up selling goods to the Confederate Army, candles, soap, things that a merchant would have to, to sell. Uh, so he's doing business that way. But Manassas is usually behind Union lines for much of the war, and he can't do good business up there. So they kind of refugee to various places, Fredericksburg, uh, and then they end up in Lunenburg County, Virginia. Uh, there ain't nothing there today. There couldn't have been much there during the Civil War but prior to coming to Appomattox in 1863. He comes to Appomattox, he has now got into sugar speculation. He is buying up sugar that is running through the blockade, and he likes to sit on it. The longer he sits on that sugar, the more valuable it is. He will sell it when it reaches a good price. Then he buys more sugar. So the reason he comes to Appomattox is because it sits on the South Side Railroad, and he can go various places in the South to help move this sugar. So uh, by the time of the surrender, if you equated the amount of money he was worth, it would have been uh, you know a million to $2 million oh, wow. Dollars wow. in modern-day terms. Of course, it's Confederate money, so... Once the surrender takes place, he's not worth anything. But uh, he was doing pretty well for himself, and you usually don't hear that part of the story. So, uh, But it is ironic that the, the generals meet in his parlor. It is one of the nicer houses in the village of Appomattox Courthouse. Uh, and I'm sure when Charles Marshall came there, he probably had no idea who Wilmer McLean right, was right. or that that happened up at Manassas. So uh, they do uh, meet in his parlor for about an hour and a half. And uh, they 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 meet like you said, and there's some small talk, right? I mean, it, it, would it be fair to say yeah. maybe this is my own? Was Grant maybe a little more nervous than than Lee? I mean, Grant's sort of trying to he's talking about Mexico, and yeah. Lee finally has to say let's let's get to it. Yeah, obviously it's a very very difficult thing for Lee to to have to do this because 
you know, his father was Light Horse Harry Lee. And uh, Light Horse Harry Lee, uh, at least at some point, told young Robert about what happened down at Yorktown and Cornwallis failing to show up to the surrender. Because in those letters that Lee and Grant had exchanged, Grant took the burden off Lee. He said he would meet with Lee or anyone Lee would designate to, uh, you know, discuss the surrender. But Lee wasn't going to put that on to somebody else. Um, so they've been corresponding, and uh, most people don't realize this. Lee's headquarters is about a mile from the McLean house, so he has a short ride. He puts on a new uniform for this meeting, and when asked why he's putting on a new uniform, he says because he expected to be Grant's prisoner and wanted to make his best appearance. Well, on the morning of April 9th, Grant is going on a ride from the troops that are pursuing Lee from behind to the troops that are in the advance because their last exchange on April 8th, Lee said he was not going to surrender. So on April 9th, Grant has no idea the surrender is going to take place. So he goes on this 20-plus mile ride to get from the Army of the Potomac to the Army of the James and the Cavalry. Uh, so he does not have any baggage with him. He doesn't have a change of uniform or anything. So he doesn't know the surrender is going to take place, whereas Lee does. Uh, and that's because of the Battle of Appomattox Courthouse we were talking about. Lee tried to break out mm -hmm. on the morning of April 9th. But the arrival of the Federal Infantry, who marched over 30 miles on April 8th in 20 hours, uh, and the Fifth Corps is pursuing uh, as well along that route. Um, so he gets a message from General Gordon saying, uh, I have fought my corps to a frazzle and I cannot go forward unless I'm supported by Longstreet. Well, Longstreet's four miles the other way facing the Federal Second and Sixth Corps. So then Lee, that's when he sends a note to Grant to tell him uh, that he wished to meet to surrender the Army. So when Grant rides these 20-some miles, first of all, people like to sometimes, I don't know if it's uh, kind of slight Grant, they'll say, oh, he showed up in a muddy uniform. Sure he did, because he just rode 20 miles over the Virginia countryside that it's been raining much of the week. Right. Now, so, he was never an extravagant dresser, no. but he wouldn't have done something like that intentionally. No. And and mud's flying. It's not yeah. just like it all just Spring. landed on Grant yeah. and mm -hmm. stuck to him and deflected from every, anybody else. Now, Grant was aware of his the way he looked, and he told Lee he didn't have any baggage, but he thought that Lee would prefer to meet him sooner rather than later. And right. Lee said he was glad he did. And they start talking about Mex the Mexican War because that puts them on common ground. Uh, they had both served in Mexico. They had met in Mexico. Uh, of course, Grant remembered it very well because he met the idol of the Army, Robert E. Lee, in Mexico, and Grant was just a lowly lieutenant. So Lee knew they had met, but he couldn't remember yeah, really Yeah, it's, it's funny. Details, Lee says, so. I've tried so many times to, to picture your face, and mm -hmm. I just haven't been able to. Yeah. Um, well, he'd get a good look at it in yeah. the parlor there <laughs> right. because uh, Grant sits down. Lee asked Grant to put his terms in writing. He sits down and he handwrites those terms. Uh, interestingly enough, he gives them to Lee to review. I mean, how how often are you going to see something like that? But he's saying, you got to remember, Grant had met with Lincoln prior to this campaign too, and Lincoln said to let him up easy because he wants these Southern people to be good United States citizens. So Grant gives him very generous terms. He's going to let their officers keep their sidearms, personal baggage. 
He says that'll have a happy effect on his men. It's going to let them keep their, the officers keep their horses. The men are going to get paroled and allowed to go home. Uh, so they're not going to get sent to prison camp. One thing I didn't realize, I mean, of course, much is made about the generous terms, which they were, but that parole pass, what that yeah. par- parole pass meant to Confederates was if, if there was a, uh, a federal train uh, or yeah. a ship heading in the direction of their home, that was free, bo- that free, uh, you know, free passage, free passage. Yep. On, by the government for you were fighting against. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, the paroles are a really neat thing. Uh, we have a display on them at the park, and you know, you see transportation stamps of for railroads or ships. You'll see on the back if you flip it over. Sometimes it'll have uh, the rations that are being issued to the former Confederate soldiers, and, uh, and at least in one soldier, we have a, a Confederate being issued uh, clothing on the way home. So pretty amazing that uh, you've been fighting against the United States government for four years, and now that you surrendered, you're getting transportation, fed, and, you know, back home. And how about the interaction between Ellie Parker and Lee? Uh, That's sort of striking. Uh, Ellie Parker, who was uh, one of uh, Grant's, uh, part of his inner circle, I think he was a lieutenant colonel. Yes. And uh, Seneca, uh, Native American. Yes. Yes. and I, I guess Lee uh, turns to him at some point. You could probably tell it better than I could. Well, yeah, it's a it's a great way to wrap up the discussion about the uh, McLean meeting that, like I said, lasted an hour and a half. And at some point during the meeting, Grant introduces his staff to Lee. And, you know, Seth, uh, Seth Williams on Grant's staff, Lee, Lee knows him very well because Seth Williams was Lee's adjutant when Lee was superintendent of the United States Military Academy, 1852 to 1855. So he knows Seth Williams. Uh, A lot of times he just nods his head to the people. Uh, We don't know how he reacted to meeting Abraham Lincoln's son, Robert Lincoln. He's in the room. He's a captain on Grant's staff. But we do know how he reacted to uh, Ely Parker, that Seneca Indian chief, who actually wrote out the terms of the surrender, the final copy in ink. He was said to have the best penmanship on Grant's staff. And uh, Lee, at least according to Parker, said, it's good to see one real American here. And uh, Parker responded, General, we're all Americans. And that kind of sums up that meeting. You know, these two sides have been fighting each other for four years, but in the end, we're all Americans, so it's a, a great way to tell what happened in that parlor. Well, I hate to go back to Wilmer McLean after that uh, eloquent uh, uh, story, uh, sure. uh, but uh, as you said, Wilmer McLean, who knows how to make a buck now, yeah. uh, and I don't think he even had to try to sell some of this stuff. Everybody recognized the significance of this moment, yeah. and um, he sells much of his furniture. He makes a lot of money. Well, he yeah, he makes some money. According to him, he's not a willing seller. That, uh, you know, Sheridan gives him $20 uh, for Grant's table, who Sheridan then gives that to Custer uh, to present to his wife, Libby. Uh, Ord, uh, that was $20 in gold. Ord, who commander, commands the Army of the James, gives him $40 in greenbacks for Lee's table. Uh, the two chairs go for $10 each. Uh, supposedly, they came back and gave him the money. He didn't want it. Threw the money on the floor, according to the family story, but uh, I always tell people, well, he probably picked it up pretty quick after he threw it on the floor. <laughs> so, yeah, he sells the furniture, apparently not happily, but it does it does go. The uh, 
three of the pieces, uh, Grant's table and the two chairs are at the Smithsonian. And uh, Lee's table ended up at the Chicago Historical Society. Um, what was this, the official ceremony like? Um, I think that Union troops get word that there's a surrender and there's some you know, celebrating and, 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 and shots fired in, in celebration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think Grant puts a quick end to that. Yeah. Uh, when Lee leaves the McLean house, he goes back to his army. He is initially met by cheers. But when they learn they've been surrendered, they kind of turn to tears. And Lee says, you know, go home and make as good citizens as you have soldiers. And I will be proud of you. Uh, Grant is going back to his lines and he hears the uh, artillery firing salutes and men firing their muskets in the air. And he says, stop the firing. The rebels are our countrymen again. So there's almost this air of good feeling established at Appomattox, which really lasts the whole time the army's there. Grant sends rations to feed the Confederate soldiers after they surrender. Uh, Of course, that will be all put asunder about five days later when Abraham Lincoln's assassinated. Um, so w- obviously you've done a lot of work here on Appomattox and this, uh, this book, We Came to Fight, is a really good book. Um, what, what else is out there? What else do we need to explore? Obviously we're looking at a bunch of Civil War books here. Uh, it's one of the most uh, covered topics you can find, but there's still more. What, what, what do we need to look at? What, what needs uh, more examination or maybe even a different lens? Well, anything in the Appomattox campaign needs to be looked at in detail. These battles, battles of Cumberland Church, the battles of Salish Creek, Chris Calkins has done quite a bit about, uh, but there's other fights, Namazine Church. Uh, me personally, I, I'm intrigued by the Battle of Appomattox Station, which is a very unique battle, uh, which has federal mounted cavalry attacking unsupported Confederate artillery. And I don't think there's another engagement of all the battles of the Civil War. There's not one that is just federal cavalry or cavalry attacking artillery without any infantry involved. Uh, so these smaller fights need to be need to be looked at and researched. I mean, there's a lot of people that write and study Gettysburg, but uh, Appomattox is the most overlooked major campaign of the Civil War. Uh, even though it bore the most significant results. Right. So, and to me, too, just on personal level, I think, you know, every Civil War unit should have a, a regimental history. That probably won't happen, but uh, it's always great to see somebody take on writing about a Zouave regiment that never had a regimental history and uh, putting that story together. Talk a little bit about the challenges in writing a book like that. I, I th- you know, one of the challenges you had with this book was, one of the diaries, I think, was in Swedish. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and I don't know if you translated it, I but did not. somebody had to, right? I did, so, yes. Yeah. So um, the 5th New York Veteran Volunteers had two Swedish officers that came over here because what would happen is uh, they needed military field experience, and that would give them promotion in the Swedish Army. So we had these Swedes come over looking for positions, and uh, two of them were in the 5th New York. Bad war to get military experience because only one of them survived. Mm. Uh, uh, Constantine Weinberg was killed in his first battle at Bethesda Church. And Liotz, Axel Liotz, he was shot in the arm and uh, captured. And a Confederate surgeon actually did a resection. They cut out the, the splintered bone from the bullet and sewed the, the bone back together. So he was able to keep his arm, but he lost the range of motion with it. So, um, so it was a bad war to get <laughs> field experience. So, uh, 
I was contacted. I, I got in touch with uh, a descendant of Axel Liotz who had his diary, uh, but it was all in Swedish. So there was a company in Lynchburg where I, I lived because uh, I was working in Appomattox at the time, actually. Um, and I, I contacted them and asked if it's a Swedish company, if they had anybody that could read you know, old Swedish writing, and and uh, fella ha- helped me out transcribing it from wow. Swedish to English. Wow. So, um, so uh, in your day job, like you just said, is at Appomattox uh, uh, Courthouse National Historic Park. Um, what uh, is there a work that's coming out after? I mean, are you working on anything else? Uh, uh, another book or? Well, there, there's uh, my time for writing has. Uh, been greatly diminished after having two kids uh so i've got a six-year-old and 11 year old uh six-year-old girl 11 year old boy so my time in the evenings when i used to write uh, is evaporated but uh uh, i have been putting together uh working on a book a lady um actually transcribed it it is the longest account of any soldier in the appomattox campaign it's written by a confederate surgeon Oh, wow. And she worked on it for 20 years on and off. Uh, but I've gone through it to uh, make sure what she was transcribing was correct, adding footnotes. Uh, and uh, Dr. Coles at Longwood University is doing an introduction. And it is pretty neat because uh, he's a very frank, honest, with a kind of unusual sense of humor. Uh, but I think he wrote over 130 pages on the Appomattox campaign of his personal experiences so it's uh you know i'd like to get that out in the next year or two and you do a conference every year too uh that you organize uh, tell us a little bit about that yeah at appomattox we run a uh uh, conference it's a free civil war seminar it's our 20th year coming up and it's done in conjunction with longwood university and this year it's going to be february 9th saturday and the great thing about this seminar is, one, it's free. Yeah, not many of them are. No. Most of them and, are actually uh, quite expensive. Yeah, they are. And uh, we use our um, money uh, from our bookstore sales to help support this Eastern National. Uh, but the other great thing is you don't need to let me know you're coming. You just show oh, up. Wow. <laughs> and you have so, big names, too. I mean, not, yeah. not you. And, uh, I mean, you've had oh, very big names. Ed Bars Ed, is yeah. coming back yeah. this year. Wow. Right? Ed Bars. Wow. I mean, yeah, we, we uh, you know, Bud Robertson, uh, Jack Davis. Uh, yeah, we get some good uh, speakers. Uh, the um, Oh, shoot. Uh, Ralph Peters. Uh, he has written numerous Civil War books, novels, and, and stuff. He's come down several several times, too. So this year, our topic is going to be uh, Civil War discoveries. Okay. So Ed Barris is going to talk about discovering the, uh, the uh, USS Cairo in the Yazoo River down wow. there at Vicksburg. Uh, Carolyn Janney is going to talk about her work on discovering the different paroling places uh, for the Confederate soldiers going home, and she's at... Uh, a professor at UVA. Uh, we've got a fellow coming from the National Civil War Medical Museum in Frederick who also operate Clara Barton's office in Washington, D.C., wow. and about the discovery of her office and the records that were in there. And uh, uh, Manassas, uh, Brandon buys uh, the 
superintendent at Manassas is going to talk about the discovery of the uh, federal field hospital there where they dug up bodies and body parts and all that. So uh, it's the only known field hospital site that's been excavated. And I'm uh, forgetting one more, but it'll... Well, I'm sure there's a list out there somewhere. Yeah, it's uh, on our, you can go to the National Park Service website, and okay. uh, it, it's on there. And like I said, it's free, Farmville, Virginia. It's a it ways it's if a you're coming bit of from a drive New York, from here, but, but like I said, it's free. There's also a lot of other, you know, Civil War sites that you can see down well, that way. So What's neat is, yeah, there's a visitor center now at Salish Creek uh, State Park. Uh, they are also uh, going to be building a visitor center at the High Bridge Trail, which is one of the it's was one of the longest and tallest bridges at the world in the world at the time but lee's army crossed that bridge uh, many of them during the night and uh they're they've restored one of the fortifications for the bridge uh there was a battle there on april 6th another one on april 7th so uh and you can come to appomattox the american civil war museum has uh, a museum outside the park service with lee's uniform his sword uh flags that were surrendered at Appomattox so there is quite quite a bit to do and even uh, not too far away is the National D-Day Memorial if you want to get yeah. outside of the Civil War and sure. uh, look at the World War II because that company the uh, Bedford Company suffered the most casualties so uh, they they have quite a interesting mm. experience there and just south of us is Red Hill Patrick Henry National Memorial if you want to get into the revolutionary right War. and you, you worked there for a time correct? I did I yeah. worked there for five some five years five right. years yeah well Patrick thank you so much for for joining me um please check out Patrick Schroeder's work uh you have we came to fight the history of the fifth New York veteran Vol- uh, volunteer infantry Dury Suaves uh 1863 to 1865 uh you have 30 myths about Lee's surrender, which is a quick, you know, it's on, it's on Kindle. Uh, you know, I, I got it, yeah. you know, I got it yesterday. Oh, and good. It was great. It, good. Uh, yeah, it's a little book. It's yeah. something you don't, mm-hmm. you know, w- the idea behind that book is I put out a myth and then I tell what really happened, you right. know, what we really know. With it, and, with it, and again, are. there's that Appomattox was so ripe to, for a somebody to, to take it on like that. I mean, mm-hmm. because it sounds... Myths seem to spring up immediately surrounding Appomattox. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, people thought the surrender took place underneath the apple tree. That's and therefore of, that's the apple the tree got dis- dismembered yes. uh, as well as, yeah. uh, you know, um, as, as McLean's house. So please check out those books. Uh, Patrick's also the owner of a publishing company named Schroeder Publications. Uh, and you can visit that site, civilwar-books.com. And a special thank you to the Waterville Public Library. We're recording this. And uh, thank you very much, Patrick. Thanks for having me.